0: Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. Mass murders, of course, today are all too frequent. We're hearing about them all the time, but if you go back to the 1700s, you never heard about them. They didn't happen until 1780 when the first one happened in the United States, and it was in rural Washington, Connecticut. Five people brutally murdered in a farmhouse by Barnett Davenport. Little was known about the case until New Milford history buff Michael Cavalero tracked down the last known copy of the confession of Barnett Davenport. Michael himself passed away, but he published the confession and others can see it. For the past quarter century, Peter Vermilier has been teaching history at Falls Village Regional High School in Litchfield County. He's a New Milford native. He's written a couple of books hidden history of Litchfield County and wicked Litchfield County, and he's studied this murder case thoroughly. He's here to discuss it. And now, the first mass murder in U.S. history took place in Washington, Connecticut. The year was 1780, and Barnett Davenport was born in the Mariel section of New Milford, a beautiful section of northern New Milford, and he was the third of what would turn out to be four sons in that Davenport family. His dad had a tough business. He ran an ironworks, and Barnett himself would face a difficult life growing up, but not unlike others growing up in those times. But it turns out Barnett wasn't like all the other young boys his age. He got into mischief like they did, but his seemed to be more troublesome, and his exploits were a little more serious than his peers, and Long he'd go on to become the first mass murderer in U.S. history. What we know about this story in large part comes from the transcript of a confession by Barnett. Now, most scholars who have looked at it and studied Barnett agree that he didn't actually write the confession, it was written by somebody who spoke to him and captured his comments and it's believed it was the local minister at a congregational church in litchfield county a compassionate and well-liked man that probably convinced barnett to bear his soul a new milford history buff named michael cavallero aided by the then curator of the gun memorial library at washington connecticut stephen bartkus tracked down the only known copy of the confession in the archives at the University of Virginia, and how it got there remains frankly unclear. Cavalero has since passed away, but he published the confession for other historians to access and interpret. One such historian is Peter Vermilier. He's a New Milford native who's been a history teacher at Falls Village Regional High School for a quarter century. I spoke with Peter about his findings in the case and how he interprets it, and the fact that today what we would call red flag warnings were all over this case at the time. The boy had an arrest record for such things as horse theft by the time he was a teenager. Starting with Barnett Davenport, now, he's born in 1760 and by age 15 he's already in, in trouble with the law and then runs off and joins the army. So let's pick it up there. He's 15 years old. What happened to him? What got him in trouble?
1: This is a young man who never attended church in that era, that highly religious era, never never attended school. Legal documents call him disrespectful, irascible, lewd, profane, dissolute, and completely ungovernable. That's one quote. Sometimes he was called a thief, a shirker of duty, a liar, a cheat, a schemer, all these different things. This is all by the time he's 15 years old. He was hired out by his father to other families to work. You know, it was common practice in that time that your labor was owned by your father until the age of 21. The father would send him out and these families would would send him back to the father saying, "We, we don't want anything to do with him because of his behavior. 14 or 15, he was sent to upstate New York to work for a family, the Stillwater family. And while he was there, began having fantasies about killing Stillwater. So the records indicate, and by the records, a lot of these records are coming from Davenport himself in a later confession. And either because of those fan- fantasies, or for fear that his petty crimes—and I use the word petty only in comparison to what's coming—we're going to catch up with him. And so, rather than be imprisoned, he joined the army. In 1776, he joined the Continental Army.
0: Now there is some discussion that when he joined the army, he first of all, I guess, ran off to Massachusetts to do that, and then joined under an alias.
1: What I have seen is that he, you know, he joined under the name Bernard or Barnard Davenport, you know, it's so, so sort of an alias, and that he perhaps bounced around from unit to unit. In a later day, this would be called uh, bounty jumping. They're offering a cash incentive to enlist. So you enlist, you get your cash, then you desert, and then you join another unit and you get that cash. So I I also see some evidence that that he was doing that. But it does also appear that he was in some very notable places with the army. He was at Fort Ticonderoga and Saratoga, Valley Forge, the Battle of Monmouth. So, you know, there's sort of two sides there to his military service.
0: Now, he does all this in a relatively short period of time. I mean, he does this over like three years, and then he he leaves the Army for good.
1: That's right. It's compacted all into about two to two and a half year period. The Battle of Monmouth, New Jersey is 1779. And after that, his unit gets transferred to the command of a General Patterson, and that force is coming through uh, Woodbury, and he asks for permission to go see his family, and he gets it, but he never comes back. You know, he deserts Patterson's command, joins a militia company, takes the payment, deserts that command as well. Then he ends up with the Mallory family in Washington.
0: So now he uh, goes back to the alias thing, right? He ends up as a a farmhand with this uh, gentleman, Caleb Mallory, in what is today, present-day Washington, but he doesn't go and tell him his real name either.
1: Mallory needs workers, and this young man comes along looking for a job. And part of what's going to cause confusion later is that he gives another alias. This time he gives the alias of Nicholas Davenport. Nicholas Davenport with his brother. Barnett Davenport is is guilty of many crimes. And and one of them is certainly a lack of creativity when it comes to coming up with aliases.
0: Well, plus you, you stop and think about it and you say in today's terms, well, come on, New Milford and he was in the Mariel section, which is where his family lived and Washington Depot, not that far apart. But in those days, you could get away with being an alias and nobody would know that Nicholas was over in Mariel.
1: Even today, what we would think Maryall to Washington, a hops given a jump the roads were horrible, even in the post-Revolutionary War era, you had Timothy Dwight, who was the president of Yale, traveling northward. And he said, "You know, the roads from New Haven to Waterbury were passable, and the roads from Waterbury to Litchfield were bad. And the roads from Litchfield north he refused to call them roads. So transportation is extremely difficult. People were very local. So yeah, you, you, could, you could pull this off. Absolutely. So he ends up with the Mallory's and Caleb Mallory, he's 65 years old. He's living with his wife. He's living with his daughter and his daughter-in-law, presumably their husbands are in service. And his grandchildren Mallory is prosperous, he's a landowner, has numerous properties, he's a metal worker, and he ran a mill. Now his home and his mill were today, it would be close to Washington Depot, where uh, routes 47 and route 109 intersect. That's the area.
0: If you're looking for specific coordinates at the intersection of 47 and 109 because they intersect twice, look for Mallory Brook. It still flows through that area. Well, this case certainly had its fair number of twists and turns. So now he goes back and has a similar episode as to what happened with the Stillwater family in terms of his psychosis.
1: Yeah, so he is living with the Mallories. The Mallories are quite prosperous. The Mallories are living upstairs, sleeping upstairs, and, and he's downstairs perhaps sleeping in the kitchen, this is Barnett Davenport, because one of his responsibilities was to keep the fire going all night. In the course of the time that he's living there, which isn't exactly clear how long he's there for, he is sort of taken in by the wealth of the Mallories. And the Mallories have upstairs in their bedroom, this would be Caleb and his wife, They have a chest, and in the chest, they keep their valuables, so to speak. And Barnett Davenport hatches a plan that he will kill the Mallories, and he will steal these valuables. So he'll take their wealth with them. But he realizes that people know he lives there. So if he kills the Mallories, and he's gone with the valuables, they're going to know who did it. And so his plan then is to kill the Mallory's and to steal the valuables and to set fire to the house. And the fire will destroy not only the house, but also the remains of the Mallory's. Anybody who came across the scene would then assume he was also killed in the fire. That's his plan.
0: Now, he had to, if I heard this story right or read about it correctly, the daughter and the daughter-in-law were convinced to sort of take a trip out of town before all this happened?
1: The daughter is Miriam, and she had left for work. So she had a job outside the home. And the other daughter in law was encouraged to go off and visit friends. And so on February 3rd, this is when Barnett Davenport decides to strike. So it is late, late, late at night, um, at some point after midnight. And he picks up a swingle, a, uh, a flat wooden tool that you use to beat flax. And he went upstairs. And he burst into the Mallory bedroom and he beat Caleb until the swingle broke. At which point, Caleb apparently threw up his hands and Barnett Davenport grabbed a musket and continued to beat Caleb with the musket. Caleb, covered in blood, is screaming, Who are you? What do you want? Why are you doing this? The granddaughter hears the screaming. And at this point, you know, he's also attacking the grandmother. I mean, the granddaughter says, What's wrong with grandmother? And Davenport sends her back to bed, saying, Oh, your grandmother's sick. And he picks up a pestle and he smashes the chest open. And as he's smashing the chest, Caleb starts to stir and he gets up. And Mallory uses the pestle to crush Caleb's skull. He took their paper money, he took their coins, anything else he could carry on his way out, that's when he starts setting the fires. houses on fire. He walks out the door expecting the house to be completely consumed. The bodies in it also completely consumed. That's what he expects. I've read some accounts that it starts to rain and puts out the fire. I've read other accounts that don't mention that.
0: But either way, there was enough evidence that people were able to piece together what had happened.
1: Either way, the bodies are not fully destroyed and they're able to identify, here are the Mallories, but their border is missing. This border, he identified himself as Nicholas Davenport.
0: So they go off on this massive manhunt and end up down in in the Maryall section of New Milford and they get Nicholas Davenport.
1: I think one thing that's important to point out There is one professional law enforcement official for the county. There is a sheriff. His name is Lynn Lord. He resides in Litchfield. What they are dependent upon are local constables and especially what we would today term vigilante groups, posses, if you will. And this is how justice was carried out in the sense of this is how arrests were made. These groups would go out and they would search for the suspect. And they would bring him in and they would turn him over to the sheriff. They are able then to um, find Nicholas Davenport, and Nicholas Davenport gets arrested, and Barnett also gets arrested. Now
0: well, they find Barnett in uh, the real uh, Barnett Davenport in Cromwell in, in a uh, cave?
1: In a cave in Cornwall. So what's unclear does Nicholas, the actual Nicholas, report on his brother's location or not you know how how did they end up at that cave in in cornwall there are reports that they're able to follow barnett's footprints for a while and that sort of puts them on the trail but both davenports are put on trial in all
0: caleb and his wife jane their nine-year-old granddaughter and two younger grandsons ages six and four were killed that night And justice in the case was swift.
1: Barnett is put on trial for five counts of murder and arson. Barnett pleads guilty. He gets what is a little bit of a classic sentence in terms of crime and punishment for that era. It's a two-part sentence, if you will. First part, this is the part I'm referring to as classic. He is sentenced to 39 lashes while being paraded around the Litchfield Green. This was very common. Whipping as a means of punishment for a crime. In fact, until fairly recently, there was a marker in Litchfield designating the site of the Whipping Post Elm, which is where prisoners were tied to while they were whipped. The belief being that punishment in public would be a great deterrence to crime. They realized, well, you know, we've got people who live in town who can see this, but what about people who live in the countryside? And so you see often sentences to things like 39 lashes delivered at three different places in town so as many people as possible could see this. So 13 here, 13 there, and 13 at a third site. Nicholas was also arraigned and tried for providing aid and comfort against the peace what we would today call aiding and abetting, he was sentenced to 39 lashes. And then he was sentenced to put his head in the noose standing on the gallows for an hour and sentenced to watch his brother be executed. And Nicholas then was also sentenced to 10 years of hard labor at the Newgate prison.
0: That execution was carried out on May 8th, 1780 on Gallows Lane in Litchfield, Barnett was one of four or five condemned men who were hanged at that location during the colonial era. Well, Barnett Davenport exited the world at the young age of 20, leaving behind a trail of unspeakable nightmares and having introduced the young new country to the notion of mass murder. up this episode of amazing tales from off and on connecticut's beaten path incidentally the newgate prison is still standing at least parts of it you can visit it in east granby in the northern part of connecticut not too far from bradley international airport it's run as a state museum well my thanks to peter vermilier history teacher at falls village regional high school and author of hidden history of litchfield county and wicked litchfield county If you like this show, make sure you follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and tell your family, friends, and colleagues about it. Also, I do presentations on the topics I discuss here on Amazing Tales. I'll do in-person or Zoom talks, and I'd be happy to discuss an appearance with your group. Just email me at amazingtalesct at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy.